got to the point, who for us and for our salvation, and he said, for who us? It's on his permanent record. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you here this morning. You know, two whammies for Tulsa is lose an hour of sleep and let it rain. So those of you that are here today, we're just delighted that the real Christians have shown up. It's not very often that we can sit here and gloat on the fact that we really are better than everyone else. <laughs> we hope that you are lenting well. You know, if you uh, go to a physician and they, that he or she expects that there might be something going on with your heart that's inappropriate, they'll oftentimes ask you to submit to a test. Sometimes it's a chemical test. Sometimes they'll put you on a treadmill. And what they're trying to do is push your heart to reveal its condition. And they put EKG kind of thing or they try to watch what's going on and they're watching to see how your heart will respond to the stimulus or stimuli that they're putting onto you. I think Lent is like that. I think when we embrace in certain things that we wouldn't ordinarily embrace in, that our heart sometimes reacts to that. I think sometimes when we want to grab the things that we normally grab and we refuse to grab them, our heart manifests some things. This Lent, as most Lents I do, I, I, don't, I put away the candy and I don't do desserts. Now, this may sound like a small matter to you, but this is a very large matter for me. I have a little particular drawer where all my treats are there. I cannot go into that drawer. And every time I eat, there's that natural impulse is to go to the drawer. I mean, I don't even have to think about it. It's just in me. I want my candy, right? And so when I stop myself, I have a little manifestation going on, a little, my EKG goes, (laughs) there is a problem with my heart. There is a, I, I love, I don't realize sometimes until I enter into a season like this, just how much I love things. Right? Or the other thing I do uh, is I drive the speed limit. It's not that I'm against driving the speed limit other times. It's just that I don't. <laughs> I'm usually on a mission. Um, but, you know, I drive the speed limit and I work through all of that and then, and then things happen like yesterday with this guy in this muscle car. Zooms right by me, pulls in front of me, and then slows down under the speed limit. I started manifesting. So just, just settle down. See, I realize, oh my goodness, Edwin, anger. Oh yeah, that, oh, I didn't know that when I'm on that. I didn't realize it. That was going on in my heart. Um, this is what happens when we go into Lent. It, it, it starts to mess with us. It, it, it's not necess- Lent is not necessarily fun. It certainly isn't sexy. But honey, it is so good for us. And we're about halfway through. Tomorrow's 20 days. Yabba dabba do. So stick in there. Go for it. Amen? All right. Now, this morning, I want to urge you to buckle up because I'm going to be talking about something that is both hopeful and disturbing. I'm going to talk to you about the prayer of lament. Uh, Theologians and scholars tell us that this is the kind of praying that has been lost in modern evangelicalism and the modern church in general. It's the kind of prayer that because of our impulse to try to fix everything, which is the impulse of modernity, we just try to fix everything, find a way to fix things, is pushes back this prayer into a place where it's inaccessible to us. And as a result, it has created problems. This business of lament has two basic aspects. One is it's emotional. It's a place where we feel something, and we'll address that. But secondly, it's judicial. 
In other words, it's the kind of prayer where we stand almost like attorneys before the Lord. And there's a reason for that. But let's first talk about the emotion. The story that we are part of in this world has both an upside and a downside. The upside is the fact that God intersects into our dimension with his life and his kingdom, with his influence and his love. And there's a lot of redemption that takes place when that, when that occurs. God redeems things. The downside of the story is that we're in a fallen world. The scripture tells us that when God created the heavens and the earth, that it was sort of a chaotic place and darkness is over the surface of the deep. There's a lot of chaos, but he begins to order it until it becomes very good. We understand because of something called sin that that creative gesture of order began to become disordered and moved things into chaos. And so we have a world in which we live that is a world that God did not imagine. It's not the world that God dreamed of. Our world is filled not just with beauty and justice. It's filled with ugliness and injustice and turmoil. This was not God's intention. This is the result of what Christian theism refers to as the fall. And we are smack in the middle of it. And with the fall comes a broken world, a sullied world, a painful world. Interestingly, as you read the scripture, it's obvious that God doesn't want us to pretend it's not that. That God doesn't want us to just think about redemption so much that we actually deny the pain that's in the world. But we are to, in essence, or in reality, enter into the pain, embrace it, and process it. In Romans 8, Paul writes, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Watch. For the creation was subjected to frustration. That's part of our story. There's frustration around us. It's real. It's not to be denied. It is there. He says, not by its own choice was it frustrated, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's where we're at. We're in a bondage to decay, but we're hoping to be brought to the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Those of you that have had children know that's a real groan. Right up to the present time, the creation's groaning. But not only the creation, but we, men and women of God, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we don't avoid the groan. We don't deny the groan. We're not delivered from the groan. We enter into the groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen, the hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul's argument is that as we embrace the groan, it makes the redemption sweeter. You know, at night, sometimes when I go home after being at the office and Gail's making something to eat, I embrace the hunger. Because as I embrace the hunger, when I show up at the door, the food is tastier. I don't try to eliminate the hunger. I don't think, oh my gosh, I've got hunger. Pull in a McDonald's. And then go home sated. Because if you try to eat when you're sated, the food doesn't taste any good. See, what he's saying to us is, Part of our faith is to embrace the pain so that the redemption is sweeter. 
And so he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with what? Groans that words cannot express. What he's saying is the Holy Spirit actually is in us to help us experience the groan. Not just evade it because of some testimony of victory. Not just deny it because we have redemption. But to somehow taste it. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. See, I don't think God wants us only to enter into redemption. He certainly wants us to. But he, on some level, God also wants us to enter the groan that was caused by the fall. And he wants us to taste it. And he wants us to mourn it. He wants us to realize it really happened and it impacts our world. And somehow when we enter the mourn, we enter into the promise of something else. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn because they enter into what? Comfort. But we don't want to mourn. Not modern Christians. We want to move directly into victory. We want the fix of redemption. We want the solution. We don't want to face suffering head on. We don't want to taste it. We don't want to experience it. We want to avoid it and deny it. We even think facing pain and agony is a testimony of unbelief and a lack of faith. That's how off we are. Walter Brueggemann, who I will quote several times in this morning's message, wrote this, quote, Jesus sees that only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted. And those who do not face the endings will not receive the newness. I used to think, he writes, it curious that when having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say Jesus wept. It is usually done as a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage. But now I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew that we numb ones must always learn again, A, that weeping must be real because endings are real, and B, that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a a fearful dismantling because it means the end of all machismo. Weeping is something kings rarely do without losing their thrones, yet the loss of thrones is precisely what is called for. End quote. What if that's true? I'm saying to you that we modern saints, especially those of us that have been raised on the theology of triumph, where only good happens, we rush so quickly to the concept of redemption, to the concept of victory, that, that we avoid feeling how bad things really are. And so we have no handles for facing loss. We have no handles for for really viewing loss other than just some kind of an evidence of a lack of faith. And we, we think that unbelief should be silenced, certainly never uttered, so we never talk about the pain. But the scripture is full of evidence that says we need to learn to experience the bad, to enter into the pain of human loss, to experience the injustice and to mourn it and to talk it, pray it. I'm telling you, this is a strange thing for us. 
I know this is very opaque for we moderns. Just hang in there. Here's a classic example, Psalm 44. This is the psalmist praying. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days and days long ago. With your hand, you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. We love this. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your face. You loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I don't trust in my bow. My sword doesn't bring me victory. You give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long and we praise your name forever. Oh man, we've all heard these texts. But watch, a lot of times we stop reading. He shifts. But now, now, you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You have made us retreat before the enemy and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance and you've gained nothing from the sale. You've made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. People shake their heads at us like we're idiots. My disgrace is before me all day long in my face. Nothing but shame. All this, he says, the taunts of those who reproach and revile me because the enemy who's bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our feet have not strayed from your path. And yet you still crushed us. You've made us a haunt for jackals. You've covered us up with deep darkness. If, If... If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to foreign gods, would not God have discovered it since you know the secrets of our heart? Yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake, O Lord. Why are you sleeping? Rouse Rouse yourself. Wake up. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Redeem us because of your unfailing love. Oh, wow. Wow. Who would dare talk like this to God among us? It is not in our vocabulary as moderns. And yet, over and over and over, you see it in the scripture particularly in the Psalms. We read it and we don't see it. You know why? Because most of the time when we read the Bible, we only notice the stuff that affirms our thinking. I dare you to read it and say, what am I not seeing? And it's not just here. Psalm 42 and 9 says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so from far from the words of my groaning? Psalm 74, why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Job 10, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness of my soul. Theologians call this lament. It was considered an appropriate 
form of prayer and worship. Why? Because baby, it takes faith to do it. You have to believe that God is okay with us being honest. It isn't like he doesn't know what you're feeling anyway. See, but we're like we are with certain friends we're not close to. We just pretend all is well. They didn't keep their word, but we just pretend they did. They don't fulfill their obligations and their promises, but we pretend they did because we're saving face and we want to be kind. We do that at God. It's a very risky thing to unpack your soul, realizing that he will not reject us for it. This takes faith. Sally Brown and Patrick Miller on their book on lament wrote this, quote, nearly all of the lament prayers move to some expression of confidence or assurance of being heard. The complaint without trust is not lament. The complaint itself is an act of trust, unquote. The fact that you complain shows you're trusting. The truth is sometimes things are not right and, and we get hurt and we don't feel safe. And oftentimes when that happens, we end up whining and complaining, but not to God, to everybody else. And you know what the rest of us do? We moderns, Christians, we 21st century evangelicals, we run each other and we say, it's okay, you know, let's just pray. Let's just study the word more. Let's study the word. Let's just get in a small group. Let's just trust God more. You know, God works in mysterious ways. See, we immediately want to just give God a, a free ride. Protect God somehow. But the reality is, we're scared to be honest about it. We're afraid to enter the groan, the pain, the injustice, the ugliness, the unfairness that touches our lives. But here's the question. What if God wants us to? What if the Holy Spirit enters us to enter the groan with us? What if God's about entering our pain? Matthew 25, when Jesus tells the people at the end of the world, he says, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, you fed me. And they all went, well, when did we do that? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. What he was saying was, I'm most present. And we don't understand how or why he's most present in those that are oppressed. We think if he was present with them, they wouldn't be oppressed. We don't get it. That on some level, God has entered and has embraced us and our fallenness so that we have hope of a new world. But we want to skip that, jump the new world. You know that the least attended service on the Christian calendar by Christians in the modern world is Good Friday? I actually heard somebody say, a leader of a Pentecostal denomination, say just the other day, we don't have Good Friday services because Good Friday is too good. We believe it really is good. See, so many people are so for victory and so for the hope of resurrection that they have a crossless faith, a painless faith. That's modernity. I think God wants us to face him, at least the scriptures claim this, and ask him, why are you sleeping? Why did you forsake us? When will things ever change? What if not saying those things is unhealthy? Now, don't misunderstand me. The saints who lament 
they knew biblically, they knew God was ultimately faithful. They knew God was loving. They knew God was redemptive. But that's why they lamented. We know you're good. What's going on? You always did this. Hello, you're not doing it now. The psalmist, after he lamented with the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, have you, why are you so far from saving me? Why are you not even catching my groaning? He went on to say, but I will declare your name to my brothers and the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. Brueggemann again. He says, quote, the most interesting and perhaps most important recurring feature of the lament form of prayer is that while it characteristically begins in need, sadness, or dire strait, these same prayers characteristically end in praise, celebration, and confidence that God has acted or will act. These prayers are real prayers. They're not merely psychological acts whereby the speaker feels better by expressing need out loud. The prayers, some of them savage in their urgencies are acts of hope uttered in confidence that God will hear and act in response. See, lament recognizes that the soul needs to mourn evil before it can embrace God's answer, which means some of us enter the answer too quickly. Lament means that saints must give voice to their grief. We must taste the pain of endings before we can taste the joy of something that's new. We need to vent, and in doing so, it opens up the way for the new. This means that God's okay with us complaining to him. It means that we need to complain to him. First time I ever ran into this was with Sister Joseph Marie, <laughs> beautiful, wonderful Catholic nun from the 70s. We used to work together with a team of people in the little Catholic charismatic Bible study group that we had, 160 kids. And the leadership team would get together and one, one, every week, and one night I got together with her, and a little early, I was there a little early, and we were sitting there waiting for everybody else to come, and she looked at me, she said, oh, did I have a morning. I said, what happened? She said, I got so mad at God, which kind of caught me off guard. I didn't understand. That language isn't in my vocabulary. You don't tell him. (laughs) She said, well, you know that as a nun, I have made vows to Jesus. He is my husband. He's my husband. I said, okay. She said, I said, so what happened? She said, well, she said, I took my Bible and I threw it against the wall. And I said, what are you going to treat me like a woman? And you lived? (laughs) I'm telling you, two responses in me. One was I was offended. I mean, where's the decorum? You know, how could you be that? How how could you talk to God like that? But then there was another reaction in me. I I wish I could be that honest. I I wish I was close enough to God to be that honest. See, most, most of us don't. I, in my disappointment, in my heartache, you know, the only words I can are generally, I, I'm learning. This message is bigger than me. I'm learning. But one of my first reactions is just simply when I'm disappointed or have heartache is I know you'll work it out. I, I know you'll work it out in your good time. Sovereign God, you know, God works in mysterious ways. 
So that's my little, little wiener talk. Janice isn't here. I can say whatever I want this morning. Don't tell, for the love of God, don't tell. I, I, I don't have language for why, Lord? I don't have language for why aren't you here? Why has this happened? It wasn't part of my conceptual universe. So not only is Lent, a lament rather, an emotional embracing of our pain, it's also, in a very real way, judicial. The scholars tell us that in a sense, we're like attorneys before God. There's a great text in the Old Testament that says God is bringing judgment to Israel and he's declaring what he's going to do. And then as right in the middle of his declaration, saying what he's going to do, he sidebars and he said, but I looked for someone among you who would stand in the gap and lift up the hedge so I wouldn't do this. Almost like God is speaking a judgment, but he's looking for someone who will stand up and say, what? Like Abraham, when he said to God, surely the God of all creation, you will not do this. Surely you would never do this. It's like God loves it. He longs for his people to stand up and to ask to do what is right. Almost like an attorney saying, this is the United States. It's not supposed to happen here. God, we're your people. Where are you? Rouse yourself. It's not an attack on God's goodness as much as a plead for justice that we're asking God to stand up and make things right. But honey, it is a vulnerable thing. Because to say to God the ruler (laughs) before God Almighty, things are falling apart. You are the ruler. What's going on? Things are not as they should be. Your rule's not working very well. That is a vulnerable place. In a way, you're asking God to be vulnerable with you, the created but we see it over and over. Exodus 32, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God, sought the favor. Watch what he says. Oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? How does that make sense? Judges 21, oh Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? It's, it's this plea for justice. We're in a world where there's all kinds of things that are wrong. And things are unfair. We try to fix it by oversimplifying, by speaking of God's sovereignty, which is really just sometimes with my Calvinist friends, as much as I love them, as much good as they say, sometimes when they talk about this explicit, overstated sovereignty as if God does everything, all it is is a cheap way out of facing reality. God is doing everything. God works everything out. Every blade of grass is God's will. Everything that happens is God's will. Then just watch more TV then. Is what it is. Then on the other side, I've got my friends who are Armenians who basically say it's all up to us. Good luck for that. So, so, well, where, where's the stand? Somewhere in the middle, messy. Some things God is sovereign in, but some things we stand up and we say, God, change this. And Lament recognizes there is a problem, problem with his promises. We were promised health, but then sometimes sickness finds us. We're promised provision, but sometimes we can't meet our bills. We're promised protection, and sometimes we lose people in accidents. We're promised 
children. And sometimes couples don't have them. We're promised that God will not let us be tempted beyond what we're able. And then we find ourselves in little corners of addiction. We're promised the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter and that when we get to full age, old age, it will be full of, full of sap and vigor. And we get to old age and some of us find out we got no more sap and no more vigor. When it doesn't happen, what do we do? You know what we moderns tend to do? We let God off the hook. We don't dare say, why, God? Life isn't right. What are you going to do? See, the utterance of the awareness of wrong is an exceedingly dangerous moment at the throne of God. It's like it's as dangerous as Rosa Parks that one fateful day when she said by asserting with her body to get up in the back of the bus and to move in the front of the bus where they were not supposed to sit, anybody of that particular skin color was not supposed to sit there and yet she's saying the system is broken and she will not honor it any longer. The danger of that moment, that step, is what lament prayer is. It's stepping up and saying, No, God, why? I got a call last night from a friend whose uh, baby girl is dying. She's in her 20s and uh, had a transplant. The transplant is failing. It's stuck for years. It's failing. And he called me and said, would you please pray? And I, uh, I told him how sorry I was. I told him, I hate this. I even used an expletive just to let him know this is horrible. And then I said to him, hang in there. Fight for your baby girl. I told him that we don't control outcomes, but we're supposed to fight for outcomes. And I could hear it in his heart. I could hear hope in his heart. Because somehow in the midst of lament, we embrace the heartache, but we move toward God being a God who can change the world. The lament, Brueggemann writes, an assertion is an assertion about God that is this dangerous available God matters in every dimension of life where God's dangerous availability is lost because we fail to carry on our part of the difficult conversation where God's vulnerability and passion are removed from our speech. In other words, we don't lament. We are consigned to anxiety and despair and the world as we now have it becomes absolutized. In other words, it's as if Rosa Parks never moves. Nothing ever changes. See, here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. We evangelicals don't know how to enter pain and we don't understand much about standing up and being an attorney for God. And so we just get paralyzed and when trouble comes, we tend to just sit there and smoke the praise the Lord ganja. Classic example, Colorado Springs, just a few years ago. A kid, sick, Emotionally, mentally ill kid came to church at New Life with a gun in his hand. Starts shooting people, at people. Shot a bunch of rounds. They finally took him out. And, uh, but before 
he was taken out. He goes back to the parking lot and there's a family in there. And he shoots into the car and kills, murders two beautiful high school kids. Girls. Do you know how, as you watch the news rolls report, see, this is, we evangelicals, we have, we have no, no way to talk about this. Do you know what they said? They're interviewing different members from the church. You know what they said? Praise the Lord. You know, it was a miracle. I mean, there's so many, so many more people could have died, but God protected the, us and, and they were able to get the, the, the shooter taken out and it was just a miracle that more people didn't die. See, immediately, go to the miracle, go to the victory, go to redemption. Nobody enters pain. Even the pastor got on and said, yeah, it's just, you know, we're just so proud of our, of our people that have been trained in our context that they were able to take him out and, and uh, minimize the loss of life and it just praise the Lord for that. And I thought, as I was watching that, I actually started crying because I thought, what if I was the dad? And I thought, it was a miracle? It was a it was a miracle that more didn't die. That's the miracle? You're praising God? See, all, all we think we can do is praise God. Never complain to him. You know what I think they should have said? I think they should have said, this was a bad day to have faith. We don't know why, but two of our kids are dead. We feel forsaken by God. He protects us, is always protected, but here today he didn't. Today would have been a better day to stay home, not have faith today. That's the way the Psalms talk. That's the way the people of God lamented. And and here's the point. When you do that, it's not because you think God isn't good. It's because you know this has been wrong and in somehow embracing that kind of pain, it opens the door for something to happen. God can begin to redeem it. When we enter the groan, it gives us the hope of redemption. When we enter the hunger and the pain of it, it gives us, it makes... Redemption so much tastier. I read later that that family no longer attended that community. Why? Kind of an embarrassment, you know, when God does a miracle except for you. You're kind of like socially embarrassing. See, I want you to know something. And I love this about our pastor, Pastor Branton, about this community, our joining together. We want this to be a place where you can be in trouble and still be loved. You know what? We, if you get cancer, we're going to trust God to heal you. But you know what? You can die here safely and no one will judge you that you died. We will mourn with you and we will mourn with your family. We will say, why God? But we will know in the face of that that God's still good enough to overcome it. We have got to face the fact we're in a world of pain. Brueggemann, one more time. In the pervasive practice of the church, in liturgical prayer, and in personal devotion, lament prayers have nearly disappeared from the horizon of faith, which is an immensely important development. Likely they remain unused because A, they're too raw, candid, and abrasive for nice Christians, and B, they're too robust in hope for modern people who do not expect a God who hears and acts 
The toning down of a prayer to less demanding forms constitutes a loss of realism, a loss of candor, a loss of robustness in our prayer. Let's stand. This Wednesday, we're going to enter into some lamenting about our world, about war, about sickness, about personal tragedies, about loss, about unfulfilled promises. And it's going to be the oddest service you've ever come to. But I'm telling you, when you learn to embrace the suck, and when you feel its ravaging and its unfairness and its cruelty and its bitterness and you feel the groan in it and you groan through it with the power of the Holy Spirit, you will find out that somehow God's power breaks through. And I'm telling you, when we don't face it, we just make ourselves numb. Praise the Lord. It'll all work out. Just numb. But when we face it, last night when I talked to my friend and we got done, and I'm crying. Why? This little girl's sweet girl you met. Somehow after that whining, there was such hope. So many times I've asked God, why has this happened in my life? What? I, I thought we had an agreement here. And it, and it, it isn't like I thought. Where were you? I don't, I don't know how to tell you other than the fact that I'm not, I, I know God is good and I know he's redemptive, but something about entering into that, something about it releases the power of transformation and best positions you to have a future that is brighter. Come Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, lament with us. It's in the midst of our lament, not in spite of it, that we lift our voices. Um, Let's join and sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As we go today, as always, we want to remind you of God's blessing for your life. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you safe. May he make his beautiful face shine on you. May he be gracious to you. May you be guided and formed by his grace. May he turn his countenance towards you. So in the midst of struggle, as we cry out to him, that we know that we're not in it alone, that he's in it with us. And may he give you peace, a peace that passes all of your understanding, anything that you can comprehend or or understand. May it guide your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. So go in peace today. If you need prayer for anything, our prayer team will be here at the front. We'll see you Wednesday night.